Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I am the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have Ted Peters, whose work that I have followed, uh, although he didn't know it, for a number of years <laughs> online. I'm going to read a bio uh, of yours, Ted, that I found. A PhD from the University of Chicago. He teaches systematic theology and ethics at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. He co-edits the journal Theology and Science at the Center for Theology and Natural Sciences. Uh, he's the author of God, the World's Future, and God in Cosmic History. He was also co-author of Evolution from Creation to New Creation. And along with colleagues, he has edited Astro Theology, Science and Theology Meet Extraterrestrial Life, as well as Astrobiology, Science, Ethics, and Public Policy. And today we're going to be talking about that particular subject, astrotheology. Uh, Ted, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on, and uh, thanks for the good work you're doing on faith and culture. Well, I appreciate that. I see uh, in your background there, you've got the graphic that lends itself well to our discussion. Um, what <laughs> led me to, to reaching out to you? Was, well, of course, a couple uh, my of mother and father were <laughs> disciples of George Adamski, the great oh, wow. contactee, and so... As a teenager on a lathe in the basement, we made this uh, flying saucer, the landing gear, or ping pong balls <laughs> painted. And believe it or not, uh, I've kept it as a symbol all these years of uh, <laughs> well, visitations it, from Venus. That's right. <laughs> it lends itself well. And, and what led me to reach out to you, and I'm grateful for your willingness to come and discuss this, we've got... Uh, uh, a probe uh, working on Mars, uh, taking samples and looking for the possibility of extraterrestrial life. We had the uh, the American government recently released a report on UFOs that was disappointing for many people. I don't know what they were expecting the government to acknowledge, but it's got a lot of people thinking about the possibility. And I think uh, religious people, uh, including Christians, need to be thinking about the theological implications and possibilities for extraterrestrial life. And as you and I were talking before we started recording the podcast, I don't think there's a whole lot of theologians doing the kind of work and reflection that you're doing, and particularly at your level. I, I really appreciate bringing science and theology into conversation. How did you develop the personal and professional interest in pursuing this subject matter? Well, um, I think you're right. There may be only a handful of theologians around the world really concerned about uh, space, extraterrestrial life, and then actually there's another field that doesn't get much coverage, and that's space ethics or astroethics. What are the ethics that should go into public policy for space exploration? And theologians who weigh in on this I call public theologians. That is to say, you're, you're taking the wisdom and knowledge from the church and trying to make it work uh, in the in the wider culture and uh, for the wider public. So uh, again, maybe a half dozen theologians around the world, but um, all of them making a contribution. 
uh, to the public discussion. Uh, my own fascination, as we uh, just mentioned, my uh, uh, George Adamski flying <laughs> saucer here, began already as a kid because my mom and dad were uh, UFO people and I read all those flying saucer books. And then when I went to uh, the university, of course, everyone dismissed flying saucers and space aliens as myth. <laughs> they don't exist. It's just a big conspiracy theory. And uh, so I gave it up. <laughs> <laughs> and then years later, when I was a uh, professor, uh, the um, ancient astronaut theory came along with Eric Fontenigan and his chariots of the gods. And they were listing the most popular books read by students and of the five most popular books, one was Fontanikin's Chariots of the Gods, and the other four were on sex. <laughs> uh, I wasn't very interested in sex, so I decided to engage the uh, ancient astronaut theory. And it happened to cover a lot of subject matter that I was familiar with. And I thought, oh my gosh, something is really wrong here. And so I dove back in and I joined MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. I became a state and, uh, director of investigation and stuff like that. And um, then uh, later on, after the beginning of my tenure in Berkeley, I've connected with astrobiologists at uh, SETI and uh, NASA Ames and uh, tried to look at both the UFO side and what's going on in the sciences. So it's been a lot of fun for me. I, uh, I think of my, my broad area is the interaction between faith and natural science. So, Well, I appreciate hearing your background and your story in the interest of full disclosure. I'm a child of the 1970s. Yeah. And uh, a big part of the 1970s growing up on television was the influence of the paranormal and so I watched a lot of documentaries and pseudo documentaries on UFOs, many of okay. them narrated by the late Rod Serling of the oh, Twilight Rod Zone. It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I, I, too, was a member of MUFON, Mutual UFO Network in the oh, 1970s and all of that. So I, I came into the subject matter through an interest in the paranormal, which continues as an academic area of interest right. for me. Um, but more recently, I've also been interested in, in thinking through the theology of, of what this means. Can you define what, it, what is astrotheology for people who don't know? Um, well, astro from space and then theology, and it's a response to astrobiology, which since the 1990s is the key word uh, for the scientific search for extraterrestrial life. And the origin of life and the evolution of life on Earth are big components in the search for uh, life uh, off Earth. Yeah. And so the astral theologian reflects, uh, tries to draw out implications for uh, religion and theology, ethics, and culture. And it only works if the uh, theologian and the scientist can work together uh, hand in hand. And at the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences here in Berkeley, we um, held some conferences and put together a very nice uh, book a couple of years ago on astrotheology, which I think you mentioned. And uh, we have some uh, astronomers and astrobiologists uh, at work there, along with theologians and ethicists, 
I, I, I call it the dice shaker model. You dump in some scientists, you dump in some theologians, dump in some philosophers, shake it up, roll it out, and see what happens. We try not to be bound to an ideology. We just know these things are important. And if scientists and theologians just can talk together in a reasonable way, uh, good things should come out. So that's basically our, um, our method. Well, I've ordered your edited volume on astrotheology. Hasn't arrived yet, unfortunately, before our <laughs> conversation here, but I'm looking forward to it. Now, you and I were also talking before we started recording the podcast, many theologians and many lay people who are conservative Christians just think this subject matter is off limits because of their hermeneutic. For them, the Bible, the way they interpret it, it tells us that there's no, this is it. This is the only place that life exists in the universe. And therefore, uh, the UFO phenomenon and anything else must be uh, demonic. They have a very dualistic kind of worldview. Uh, but you as a Christian theologian don't have that particular mindset. What, what are you bringing to this theologically? Well, I really looked into this matter carefully that you have just described. Why is it that there are certain right-wing Christian groups that want to accuse um, flying saucers and those who see flying saucers from being involved with demonism? Now it's going to get complicated. <laughs> if you look really carefully at those arguments, the problem is evolution. Again, <laughs> they've already decided that evolution is demonic, right? And anyone who sees a flying saucer in the sky and thinks that on an extraterrestrial planet, life has evolved and evolved further than it has on Earth so that the ETIs are capable of sending ships here. It's going to cause you and me, when we see that shiny object in the sky, to believe in evolution, but we know evolution is demonic. It is such an absurd, absurd argument. But uh, it was raised already in the 1970s and has uh, kind of like moss, you know, sort of held on to the subject. But I did uh, try to do a survey, and uh, maybe we'll talk about that briefly, on just how people think about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. And the first observation is almost nobody believes in the Satan theory. Oh, yeah, there might be some loud mouse here and there, but the average Christian they disregard the Satan theory. You, you want me to say a few things about... Yeah, please, go ahead. I know I you've got some slides too, so please feel free. Um, I uh, wondered... I'm just going to put up this slide. So, uh, along with a, um, research, a graduate student uh, researcher, um, uh, Julie Freilich, we conducted this survey and asked people, uh, well, you can, I'll read this question. Official confirmation of the discovery of a civilization of intelligent beings living on another planet would so undercut my beliefs that my beliefs would face a crisis. And so the survey responders would say, yes, I self-identify as a religious person. I'll answer this question. We got enough response to be statistically valuable from 
the evangelicals, which include the fundamentalists, we didn't sort the two of them out, the evangelicals, uh, mainline uh, Protestants, Roman Catholics, um, Orthodox Jews, Buddhists, and non-religious. And take a look where all the columns are. 90 plus percent in every one of those religious traditions said, this would not cause a crisis in my faith. We even got comments such as, I'd share a pew with an alien any day. <laughs> and uh, uh, note this includes your fundamentals and evangelicals. They are not different from the Roman Catholics, the Protestants, um, or, uh, or others. Now, <laughs> Uh, there was one revealing uh, item, and that is, even if my faith is not going to be challenged by confirmation of ETI, what about those other religious people? Are those other religious people going to have problems? And look what, what you get. I'm going to go to the next slide here. Uh, I forgot how to do that. I got to go down. All right. Here we go. Even though my religious or non-religious viewpoint would remain unaffected, contact with extraterrestrials would so undercut traditional beliefs that the world's religions would face a crisis. Well, you could see quite a, a variety of responses on that, with the exception of this tall. <laughs> Who's that? That's the non-religious people. Hmm. Non-religious people say, oh, all those religious people, they're going to have a problem. I won't. They will. <laughs> so religious people don't have a problem, but they're being told by non-religious problem, uh, non-religious uh, people that uh, they're going to have a problem. So that doesn't deal with the Satan issue. As I said, that is so marginal in terms of the widespread uh, belief systems. But secular sort of anti-religious people think that religious people are so hidebound by their tradition, they're going to be shocked. And it turns out clearly religious people, Christian or non-Christian, no problems. In fact, the Buddhists were so interesting. 100%. There wasn't a single Buddhist who was worried about his or her uh, uh, faith and, uh, and, and all of this. So at any rate, I find that information to be helpful. I mean, it's not a slam dunk in terms of telling us um, anything specifically. The theologian, of course, needs to ask on the basis of our understanding of God's creation, does it include the whole cosmos? And if it does, does it include brothers and sisters living on exoplanet somewhere? Yes, I think it certainly does. And it wouldn't hurt for us and the churches to begin thinking about, well, are we going to invite the uh, aliens to a bean supper in the church basement, you know, when they show up? When... Well, hopefully we can have more than beans. Hopefully it'd be a full-on <laughs> Southern Baptist potluck. I mean, the Southern Baptists are having a tough time right now, so maybe... Oh, they are. Well, yeah. Yeah, maybe get their minds <laughs> off their other issues if they can have a potluck with the aliens. That's right. Now, for folks who might want to track down some more of those slides that you just showed, that's the uh, ETI Religious Crisis Survey. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It, uh, my website is listed there. And if you go to that website, you can find a link uh, to the raw data if you want. And then okay. there's some articles that summarize it. And we'll include links to your books and your website and everything else in the podcast oh, okay, as well. So folks can track this down. Right. Uh, I, just just a, a quick follow up. 
Um, I think folks should also understand that in light of many uh, conservative right-wing fundamentalist and evangelical takes on this particular topic, it's not it's evolution that's in the mix, but it's also conspiracy theories, eschatology, uh, certain end times views, so that UFOs often get folded over into the Antichrist and the end times and deception and this kind of a thing. Yeah. So, so this is a complicated, multi-layered kind of thing, and uh, the hope is that folks will just kind of take a step back theologically right. and realize that there are other perspectives and other information to bring to it. Yeah. And, and I think a more sober approach is better than um, putting uh, UFOs into the book of Revelation somehow. Right. <laughs> exactly. I don't think there. <laughs> um, now let's talk a little, let's unpack uh, what uh, extraterrestrial life would mean for other, uh, for religious traditions, whether Christianity and others as well. I think you've got some slides related to that. Do you not? Or well, the, the survey did um, reveal some things, um, and uh, I found the, the, the Buddhists, uh, as well as mainline and Roman Catholic, mainline Protestant, Roman Catholic, and evangelical Christians, all agreed on one point. The cosmos is big, and the earth is small. And we have to accept the fact that we are a small part of a very large cosmos, and that God might be doing things elsewhere that have nothing to do with us. And we should accept the fact that, um, uh, that we're small. Now, the scientists call this the cosmological principle, the recognition that what happens on Earth is just not special. Now, that, I think, becomes a theological issue because we've been thought all along that we are special, we're the apple of God's eye, and we simply need to sort out what that can mean in this context. I don't think it's any virtue to automatically humble ourselves and say that, you know, we're marginal or something like that. Uh, but um, I do think that... Um, we have to develop uh, a sense, and here, here's a theological issue, would intelligent creatures on Zeta II Reticuli also have the Imago Dei or the image of God like uh, as we do? Uh, those are the kinds of questions that I think we need to ask and in a relaxed way. <laughs> we right. don't have to like defend the uniqueness of Homo sapiens and we don't have to uh, take the image of God and just kind of distribute it willy-nilly either. You know, I think we need to uh, think these things um, through. And one of the um, sticklers or problems uh, has to do with our, the value of intelligence. We are naturally inclined, especially in the West, to value intelligence. And so reason has had a very high value for Christians in the West. So it's just natural that would be, we'd be inclined to say, hey, are those aliens intelligent or not? And if so, do they have a relationship with God? But a second thought is we Christians value love far more than intelligence. And uh, you can have a dim-witted person who is if very loving. We find that person to be very precious. And so we don't have to say, well, um, intelligence is nice, but love is even better. Let's, uh, you know, let's be sensitive to these things. So I think the theologians 
have a lot of sorting out to do as to what are the right questions we should be asking here on this frontier. Well, I have to ask, uh, as a UFO research nerd, why did you choose Zeta Reticuli 2 as a <laughs> reference? Well, you probably <laughs> know the answer to well, does it. Does it have anything to do with the Betty and Barney Hill? Uh, yes, the Betty and Barney Hill yes. abduction case of 1961. Betty sees a star map when she's in the uh, flying saucer. And later on, Marjorie Fish identifies that map as Zeta to uh, a planet orbiting Zeta to Reticuli. And uh, Stan Friedman, whom you probably have run into, um, for many years said, this is as good a piece of scientific evidence on behalf of alien visitation uh, that we're, we're going to find. And uh, so that's kind of, kind of uh, stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's where, where you were drawing from. Right, I remember right. watching that TV adaptation, TV oh, movie oh, yeah. in the 1970s. Uh, that was interesting. It just sticks that's right. So, yeah, so very interesting there. Well, as a theologian, help us understand what kind of, you know, over the history of Christianity, we have had to, to rethink our theology. And I think many conservatives assume it's just static, right? It's in the Bible. And we pick it up and the church has just had it and uh, it, it is what it is and always has been. But if you are a little more careful in reading your church history, you recognize the church has, has rethought things. And especially in the 20th and 21st century, with our change of worldview, the emphasis upon science, we have to look at uh, an Iron Age worldview of creation and the cosmos and update it for what it means for us today. Um, it's not a static process. What kinds of things would we need to rethink in what theologically in light of the existence of extraterrestrial life? Well, maybe we uh, could distinguish between the sort of essential things that we think we know as Christians coming out of the Bible. We know, first of all, that God is unknowable in the sense that we can't know God in the same way that we know ordinary things. We also know that God is gracious, that the world was created out of divine love. God's concern for you and me and the human race is an abiding form of love. God in Christ forgives sins. God promises the resurrection of the dead. These things have not uh, changed, but our picture of the world around us has gradually changed and will continue to change over the next uh, couple of centuries. So when you read Genesis chapter 1, 1 to 2, 4a, where God creates the world in seven days, um, the world there doesn't look exactly like it does in terms of the Big Bang theory of the cosmos that we uh, take for granted today. Same God, same creative work, but the description of the world just is a, a little bit um, bigger. And if we look at the history of our ancestors from the New Testament over the next thousand or 1200 years, my gosh, we were blessed for, with some really bright ancestors who thought through the worldview of their day. And it was dominated by Aristotle and Plato and Plotinus and, you know, um, the scientists, so to speak, of the Greek and Roman period. 
And they did a marvelous job, so to speak, of moving what we learned from this small group of 12 tribes of Hebrews into this giant uh, global metropolis uh, of the Roman Empire. They did a marvelous job of adjusting. And I think it just goes on. That's what theologians are earning honest living doing <laughs> is uh, keep drawing out implications for all the new things that we learn about uh, God's creation. Do you have any sense about, uh, you, you did a survey and, and adherents of these religious traditions said it wouldn't be a problem, many of them, but it would take some rethinking, I would think, in certain areas, not just for Christians. Do you have any sense of what uh, representatives of other religious traditions are thinking about how they might need to. I um, uh, found, uh, I was concerned about Muslims uh, in particular, you know, because of the, the literalist interpretation of the Quran and such things. But even Muslims uh, embrace the cosmological principle, namely that Allah could be creating uh, other races of beings on other planets. So even they didn't seem to have much compunction. And um, when it comes to worldviews for uh, Hindus or Buddhists, uh, again, there's such flexibility there. They don't have the, an investment in a specific worldview. What they're concerned about is the laws of cause and effect in the natural world, and they would apply on earth as well as uh, anywhere else in the cosmos. Um, so I think probably um, Jews, Christians, and Muslims will probably have to work harder, <laughs> but I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's a lost cause at all. And as you probably know, when you look at fundamentalist Christians or creationist Christians, um, and some of whom claim that they're making a literal interpretation of the Bible. Those interpretations are never literal. <laughs> they're, they're always embellished by contemporary uh, understanding. And so literal interpretation is not possible intellectually. Uh, the authority of the Bible, to be sure, <laughs> Uh, the, Bible, the Bible has authority for faith and life, that's for sure. Uh, but interpretations are always going to be in light of your and my experience, and your and my experience have to do with the world within, um, uh, within which we live. And even the creationists, I've spent a lot of time with the creationists, they live in the same scientific world that you and I do. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they're kind of upset about Darwinian evolution, but the world they live in is still the same world that you and I uh, live in. So I, I think that's simply our responsibility as Christian thinkers to just kind of keep on, uh, keep on thinking and not get buffaloed by those who claim uh, sort of a literal return to something, that, something in the past. That's my thought. Yeah. Now, I, I think you've got a couple of other slides. Is that correct that you wanted to show and make sure? Yeah, uh, but I, I, uh, I've got some preparation for that. Okay. Uh, I, I am really concerned about myth. As I analyze culture, uh, I look for salvation myths. And you can find them in religions, but can you find them in secular culture? And um, I... Uh, believe I've discovered a myth that's common to the UFO phenomenon, 
and what's going on in the hard-nosed uh, sciences. So if we go back to George Adamski in this flying saucer here, what's going on? Post-World War II, we have this ambiguous relationship with science. On the one hand, science dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and ended the war. Hooray for science. <laughs> on the other hand, what happens if science drops some more bombs? Right. And uh, so we got this tug of war between the goodness of science and the evil of science and the power of science. And so the guy from Venus comes to visit George Adamski and he looks like Jesus. And he says, stop nuclear arms testing. If you stop nuclear arms testing, you're going to have world peace. Whoa. In fact, that so engulfed, really, America, you weren't even born yet, say, but so engulfed the culture, we even had people running for office on, on space peace platforms um, at that time uh, because we wanted to save ourselves from nuclear destruction and the aliens were going to help us do it with their superior technology. Now you jump to the 1990s. You had talked earlier about Satanism in the 1980s. Um, and then when we get to UFO abductions in the 1980s and 90s, now they're negative. Then, you know, whereas in the, in the past they were very positive, they're gonna come and save us. Now they're negative. Uh, and the chief investigator was a guy named John Mack at Harvard. You probably know all about mm -hmm. John. And uh, so I, I had to go to Harvard and say, John, everything you're doing here is um, contradictory to what's going on in the last 40 years. So we talked it over quite a bit. And he said, you know, these people who give us these negative abduction reports, they change their mind. After a couple of years, they look back and say, oh, these were wonderful experiences. They'd come out very positive. Anyway, so the myth has developed that we have this extraterrestrial civilization, more highly evolved, more technologically evolved, and they're going to come to Earth and bring us world peace. Certainly the hard-nosed scientists don't believe that, right? <laughs> Maloney. They believe exactly the same thing. That Evolution is progressive and intelligence and complexity are the direction evolution is taking. And when it comes to the human race, religion is primitive. And as we get more highly evolved, we get rid of religion, we become scientific. And those aliens on those other planets are more highly intelligent than we are, they're more highly evolved and they're more intelligent than we are. And when they come, they'll help us get rid of religion. <laughs> and by the way, getting rid of nuclear war and ecocide um, as uh, as as well. So that's the background. So now let me okay. let me show you my uh, slides. And um, okay, so I um, spent some time with Chris McKay, who's a Mars expert at NASA. Uh, Ames research. And um, as you come out of his office, you come into a kind of atrium, and here's this giant painting 
maybe three feet by six feet or something like that. So let's just read it from left to right. So we will go over on the left-hand side. We see the early Earth, uh, 4.5 billion years ago. It's getting bombarded by asteroids and debris and space, etc. It's very hot and molten. But then in time, it cools and we get water. And in the water, the first life forms appear. Now, I don't know if you can see, we eventually get DNA molecules, right? So the DNA molecules now over long periods of time are evolving into more and more complex structures. And finally, we're getting animals and sea animals and fish. And then they start to crawl up on land. And then we get the dinosaurs. And eventually, we evolve human life. Look at that. But we're not done. <laughs> Human life keeps on evolving, getting more complex and more intelligence until we end up where? At the scientific observatory, which connects heaven and earth. And if you know anything about the history of religions, the shaman connects heaven and earth. That's the Axis Mundi. Now, where are the religious people? They're probably down here making fire uh, because science, of course, is more highly evolved. Uh, than religion. And so I, I got Chris, uh, the uh, astrobiologist, and said, Chris, let's look at this, look at this picture together. Um, isn't this a myth? Evolution is progressive, and it finally ends with you, the myth teller, as being the nth degree of evolution, and now you're going to connect us with a still higher form of evolution uh, in the cosmic uh, beyond. And he laughed. He says, well, real evolutionary scientists do not believe that evolution is progressive. Of course, of course they don't. But look <laughs> at the image of the myth maker here, and that's the astrobiologist. So now if you think that I'm crazy here, over-interpreting, let me show you the next slide. I was invited to um, give an address, a paper, you know, 100 people get papers, at the Astrobiology Science Conference of 2012. And I just want you to notice the title of this section here, okay? How can astrobiology help save the world? <laughs> so um, I, I see this as a full-blown myth right in the heart of science. They've taken evolution and uh, it's kind of a megalomania that we, the scientists, are the saviors of the planet. Well, okay, so then why did you drop atomic bombs? Well, you see... Our science isn't quite perfected yet, but those more advanced scientists living on other planets, you know what? They've learned how to live without war. Yep. And if those scientists come to Earth, they'll bring us world peace. So I, I just want to say, I think these are this is a mythical structure. I call it the ETI myth. And you find it at work both in the UFO community and in the astrobiology community. And I don't want to even suggest that astrobiologists don't do good science. They do wonderful science. There's no question about it. But I'm trying to look at this from a theological point of view, 
in terms of culture. And so now let's get back to those Satanists. The Satanists figured this out, or the anti-Satanists, I mean. They figured this out. Everybody believes in evolution. Doggone it, we're losing that war. So if we can identify the extraterrestrials with Satan, then people will stop believing in evolution. I want to say that's a hopeless battle. Uh, don't get into it. Uh, I think we're just going to have to say, at least hypothetically, evolution is the dominating uh, science, and we probably better learn to live with it rather than without it. But we need a good, um, uh, we need science at its best, and science at its best says evolution does not progress this way. You can't make a myth like this because it, uh, the science doesn't back it up. So at any rate, that's the kind of mischief I get into. Well, I appreciate all that. Uh, uh, part of my academic work is uh, in new religious movements. I've looked at UFO religions quite a bit over the years. Right. I've also looked at myth within science fiction and religion uh -huh. within science fiction film. And so you see it there as well. So I, I resonate with what you just shared. Right. I want to honor the time commitment. We talked about uh, 45 minutes or so. So I'm going to ask you one last question, if I could get sure. your reflection. Um, can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing at Graduate Theological Union in your department, and then also how that might fold into what suggestions you might have for Christians who want to critically engage, bring their faith into critical conversation with science and other disciplines so that we can be better equipped to, to think through issues like astrotheology? I teach in the theology and ethics department at the Graduate uh, Theological Union, and we're an interreligious group. In fact, there's a Hindu who currently, Hindu woman, a wonderful scholar who heads our department. And it's marvelous to have uh, Christians and people of different religious traditions thinking about God's relationship to the world. Now, the Buddhists don't believe in God, but, you know, we still are able to, to think about these things together in a very, uh, very wholesome way. And you can do distinctively Christian things and you can do interreligious things uh, or multi-religious. Usually comparing and contrasting two traditions is better than uh, interreligious. So it's a good, healthy environment. And along with um, another professor colleague of mine, uh, Robert John Russell, our responsibility is the interaction between religion and science, Christianity and science, but uh, Islam and science and Hinduism and science, etc. And it's within that then that the astro theology um, falls. And we do have some um, interest. Uh, we do a lot in ethics, uh, as you can imagine, stem cell and genetic uh, research requires a lot of ethical thinking. And as I uh, mentioned earlier, I call this public theology. Most people in public theology think they have to deal with uh, poverty and uh, racial discrimination and things of that nature. But uh, science is also <laughs> a very public uh, uh, phenomenon. And I think we in the church could contribute positively, or at least think of part of our mission, not the whole mission, part of it is to help make he uh, society healthier by bringing uh, critical Christian wisdom uh, to bear on public issues. Some of these are scientific issues. Well, I appreciate all that. And I, I look forward to continuing to follow your work. Uh, it, I found it very helpful and insightful over the years. And uh, again, I just appreciate you taking 
the time to come on this podcast and uh, and share with the audience. It's good well, stuff. Well, it's a pleasure and an honor for me to be invited, and I uh, wish you all the best as you pursue your fine work. Well, my guest today has been Ted Peters, and uh, you'll find again in the podcast notes a listing of his various books, including uh, the works on astrotheology that we've talked about today. Uh, Ted, again, thank you for being on the program, and we thank you for listening and watching until the next podcast of Multi-Faith Matters.